Hi, I'm Gülsel Baysu. I'm a lecturer at Queen's University of Belfast in the School of Psychology. Awareness of discrimination is, in a way, the first step to prevent these kids from the negative effects of discrimination. If the school is fair and, and it's valuing cultural diversity, then kids in those schools have more positive experiences for their teachers. They also report lower experiences, lower instances, fewer instances of discrimination. for listening to our podcast. I'm Tuca Aral. I work at the Inclusive Education Department at the University of Potsdam in Germany. Today, Diana Pitze from Erasmus University Rotterdam and I will be your hosts. In this episode, we talked to Dr. Gisele Baisu from Queen's University of Belfast. This episode was quite special to me as she was one of my lecturers during my bachelor's studies in Turkey who actually inspired me to think of research as a career. So what can you expect from this episode? We talked to Dr. Baisu about discrimination and its impact on the well-being of adolescents, as well as the cultural diversity climate at schools. So whether schools are being fair to all students regardless of their cultural heritage and whether they value diversity. Gusseri also talked about the inequalities in academia and society from a global perspective. As always, you can find the references to studies we mentioned in our website. So tune into our conversation with Dr. Gusseri Baisu and let's get started. Welcome, Gisele, and thanks for being with us today. As in every episode, we start talking about the past. So far, I've known you as my former social psychology lecturer when I was studying psychology in Turkey, and I have known you recently as a colleague since I ended up working on similar topics uh, with you as a researcher. So I've seen you as a lecturer and a researcher, so I know that you're doing an excellent work in both. So I want to start with the general question, why did you become a researcher? I became a researcher because I think I always had an interest and motivation to make a difference in people's lives. I used to want to change the world, you know, I had big aims. <laughs> But um, I think in a way I'm, I'm still contributing to that uh, with my um, research questions, empirical questions into social and political psychology and in cultural diversity issues. On the negative side, I am working on the issues of discrimination, negative stereotyping and bias and their consequences. But on the positive side, I also get to work on issues of social justice, uh, interventions and policies that will promote more positive diversity climates. So you talked about discrimination and cultural diversity climate as your research interest. So um, why did you become interested in these topics specifically? Yeah, I think because discrimination and cultural diversity, as I said, I, I want to make a change in people's lives. And that gives everyone equal opportunities. That was always my concern. I was interested in political issues as well when I was younger, and I'm still interested in political issues. I wanna, my research aims to create contexts that are inclusive, be it at school level or society level, so that everyone gets an equal chance to reach to their potential. So I think that's why I'm interested in issues like cultural diversity and discrimination. Yeah, I see. So um, do you think as a researcher, you also had some challenges yourself that you encountered on the way of becoming researcher and doing the research around this topic of discrimination and cultural diversity climate? Yeah, I didn't really have a straightforward academic career. 
when I think about it, um, I never felt like I belonged. I studied at Middle East Technical University, but I never felt like I belonged there. And I didn't know why. And now looking back, I realized that most of the difficulties I experienced was because I was a first generation in the sense that I come from a lower SES background and my parents are primary school graduates. You know, and I never even considered academia or being researcher as an option for myself. I didn't know where to apply. I didn't, I had no role models in that sense. And later on, much later when I started reading about these issues, because there are, there is great line of research now uh, talking about the issues of low SES and first generation academics, first generation university graduates and what difficulties they experience. And I realized that most of the difficulties I experienced was because I was a first generation myself. Yeah, and so you say that you didn't feel belong to university that you studied, but can you also tell us more about how exactly you didn't feel belong? So what was the thing? When you look back, can you identify what was the things? I think, at least in my university, most of the students uh, came from um, higher SES backgrounds. They dressed in a certain way, they acted in a certain way, and most of the academics as well. I think they just, it was like they knew what they were doing, you know, they were studying for GRE, and I found out what GRE is when I was 25. So whereas in my final year, I was still trying to find out my way and my place in the world, they already knew what they wanted to do. They were studying for GRE or going to the U.S. and scholarships and et cetera. Those, those things, I had to really search for myself and found out for myself. Like, there was no guidance for that. Yeah, I see. It makes sense because it's also applying to graduate schools and all those things. You need to know certain ways to do it or contacting advisors. Like yeah, Exactly. I had no idea about these things. And I... I think the most challenging thing, I didn't even think that working in academia was an option for me, you know. I think somewhere along the lines when I was 25, in the middle of my first PhD in Turkey, I said, what am I doing? What am I, like, what am I going to do with my life, you know? I, I tried being an academic, so being a developmental psychologist, I worked in the nursery for a while, and I thought it was nice, but after a while it became repetitive. At first you learn new things, but after a while it just became repetitive and I got bored. I thought I would be an industrial and organizational psychologist, but I, I tried kind of an internship, but I didn't like it either. And then I did a master's in political science. I didn't like that either. I came back to, to do PhD in psychology and in the middle of it, actually, I gave one year break and I thought what I want to do with my life. And I realized that I actually want to be an academic and that is actually an option for me that I like asking, I like reading, I like learning new things, I like asking empirical questions and trying to find answers to those. And I thought I also like traveling, you know, and <laughs> as, as someone coming from a lower SES background, my only way to go abroad and experience new environments and travel was actually becoming an academic. So I thought, yeah, now I decided to be an academic halfway through my first PhD around 25. 
Yeah. I'm glad after all this reflection, like doing different things and you ended up doing PhD. So because I also remember, so first time I've heard about PhD from you actually. So. <laughs> because like, I'm like a second year of bachelor student and someone walks into the classroom and it's like, mm, she looks young and you know, a woman, young woman and doing teaching. I'm like, is it possible? And I remember you saying you had two PhDs, like you had like And I'm like, I was so surprised. And, you know, I like seeing smart women. <laughs> and I was like, so excited. And so, yeah, I think this is also how I found out that you can also do not one, but two PhDs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think it's still um, quite impressive. But um, I think you were the first one. I also felt like, mm, okay, so such cool thing to do. <laughs> I have a follow-up question. It's so nice that you are so open about, you know, also taking not the most direct route into research, because I think that is a story that somehow persists. I don't know where it comes from, that people always know immediately what they want to do and go for the goal and, uh, you know, immediately start an academic career right after, you know, studying. And so I really appreciate that you bring this perspective. And I was also wondering, so on one hand, you said the benefits of trying different things to then getting to employers where you really are committed and really know what you want to do. And on the other hand, I was also wondering how maybe your background as yeah, first generation higher education, you know, as the first one in your family to go to university, how that might now also enrich what you do and the questions you ask and your research and so on. So do you also see it as a resource in a way? Yeah, it's both ways, right? At times I feel like I wish I was more focused And I knew what I wanted right away, like, you know, like those girls in my school who are applying for GREs and stuff, you know, and then getting scholarships to go study in these prestigious U.S. universities. But on the other side, yeah, like every experience that I went through made me who I am, right? I mean, the kind of questions I asked, the kind of struggles that I experienced myself probably throw my questions into creating inclusive context, you know, both in academia, in schools, everywhere in life. So it makes me who I am. And I think there is not a single way of being an academic, and especially if you're not coming from high-risk yes, or parents with PhDs, it's okay to take the long route and explore your options and then find where you are. So I, I don't really regret. It's just, you know, it's, it is what it is, I mean. So that would bring me to the next section, to the present, which is where we want to discuss an article with you that has recently inspired you. So which paper did you bring us today? I brought a paper on racial ethnic discrimination. It's April Banner and uh, Yuji Wang and colleagues' paper. It's Racial Ethnic Discrimination and Wellbeing in Adolescents, a Meta-Analytical Review. It's a 2018 paper. It's a recent paper that's published in American Psychologist. Yeah, and maybe to quickly define what discrimination means and what yeah, racial ethnic discrimination specifically means. So in their paper, they do define discrimination as any behavior which denies individuals or groups of people equality of treatment, which they may wish to receive. And specifically, racial ethnic discrimination is then meant, yeah, so discrimination can go against several 
different social identities of people, right? And in this specific topic, and I think that's also close to your own research, the focus is on the stigmatizations that certain racial or ethnic groups perceive by larger society mostly. Exactly. It's about your own experiences of your feeling, your experiencing, your perceiving that you're treated unequally, and that is because of your ethnic racial background or the way you look or the language you speak, you know, that could, because there are different indicators of racial, ethnic or religious identity, if you will. It could be that you're wearing a headscarf, it could be your skin color, it could be the way you speak English, it could be your name, so all these indicators. And I think what might be very good to clarify in the beginning is also that there's usually the difference between discrimination and perceived discrimination, right? So this research specifically focused on the perceptions of discrimination. Yes. So it does not focus on indicators of discrimination, but how people themselves experience to what extent they are being stigmatized or discriminated and so on, right? Yeah, it is the individual's own subjective experience of discrimination. Yeah, thanks for clarifying. And I wanted to ask you now, so why do you think this is an outstanding paper? Okay, there are several reviews actually on discrimination, but they are mostly on adult populations. And this is also a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis in a way provides an empirical summary of several other empirical articles. And they look at more than 200 articles and more than 90,000 participants' experiences of discrimination on a wide range of developmental outcomes, including psychological well-being, academic achievement, and health risky behaviors. And I also like that they focus on adolescents, uh, not only because it aligns with my research interests, but also because adolescence is such a critical period in one's life, whether you're a minority or not, right? It is the time where you're looking, you're trying to make sense of yourself, you're searching for your identity, you're trying to make a meaning, but at the same time, whatever you do in adolescence has direct effects on your future life chances, your academic success, your well-being, everything affects your future. So I think it's one of the rare meta-reviews that focus on adolescence and on a wide range of developmental outcomes. And with adolescents, so they do focus, they did include like from early until late adolescence, right? So that would mean, what age group would that be? Yes, so around from 10 to 18, 20, under that period. 10, 13 would be generally considered early adolescence, and then middle adolescence, I think older than, slightly older than 16 or 17 is considered late adolescence. If you had to explain this paper to your grandma, which is a question that we like to ask, <laughs> how would you do this? How would you explain the main findings of this paper? I think it is, in a way, it's simple enough because it says that experiencing perceiving discrimination due to one's racial or ethnic background has several serious negative consequences, right? It is associated with uh, lower psychological well-being, it's associated with lower school success, it's associated with lots of risky behaviors, including uh, deviant behaviors, anger issues, but also even they look at substance abuse, those kind of issues as well. 
I think what is also interesting, the effects are worse in early and middle adolescence than later adolescence. So the younger kids seem to be even more influenced by these negative effects than, than older kids. And probably because in late adolescence, you're probably more resilient, you have more resources, coping resources to deal with the effects of discrimination. But whereas when you're at 10, the first time you realize that you're being maybe discriminated, and then that might really affect your self-esteem, your academic achievement, everything. What I like about this study and how it affects my own thinking as well in academia, right? Because over 200 studies, right, like almost all were about U.S., so it was heavily weighted to U.S. samples. They had only nine European samples, four Australia and four from the rest of the world. It's, uh, in a way, outstandingly negative, right, because <laughs> it's impressive that there are more than 90,000 participants and discrimination effect is severe and negative, but most of these findings are from the US, right? Very, very limited population. I'm not saying that discrimination is not gonna be negative for other countries or other minorities, but we cannot assume that it's gonna be, right? So we have to understand how it works in the rest of the world as well. Yeah, I think that's a very valid point. And I think also maybe there might be negative effects, but maybe in different, you know, domains, different outcomes, or there might be different perceptions of what is discrimination and what isn't might differ very much between different countries, right? So Exactly. And then, then some groups might be more resilient to discrimination as well, right? I mean, than other groups. So it would allow us to understand the boundary conditions of when is discrimination is worse in terms of which outcomes and for what groups. These are important questions that I think future research should really uh, take into account. Going beyond the US, right? We need to do that. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, but it is uh, still a serious problem in psychological research. As a follow-up question, I just wanted to ask, why do you think there is very little amount of study outside of U.S. and studying discrimination? So I'm guessing this meta-analysis didn't on purpose not include the studies, but there's not... Yeah, exactly. They searched the literature and using a certain keywords, so it's not that. They even included some unpublished research, right? I think there are several barriers. If you're a researcher from a non-US background or you're studying non-weird samples, you know, the word weird is not clear for everyone. It refers to Western, educated, industrialized, rich, demographic countries and samples there, simply Western countries, you know, Western, more economically developed countries. And in this specific regard, it's mostly U.S. studies, you know, even the European studies don't seem to be focusing on uh, discrimination. And there are several barriers. As a non-Western scholar studying non-weird samples, there are several barriers in front of you, both in the reviewing process, but also in terms of resources like money or infrastructure in schools. Okay, so you would generally say it's the research about discrimination is actually done outside of U.S., but the main problem that we don't see this research out in this meta-analysis is that it's hard to publish your research if you're from outside of U.S. Yeah, I think one barrier is definitely that, that it could be also doing research. You know, doing several studies, doing research is harder because there's not enough money, but it's also harder to publish that research is one side of it. But specifically for discrimination, possibly it's also 
in repressive sociopolitical context, it's harder to ask these questions as well. Like if you want to ask these questions of uh, discrimination experiences of Kurdish minorities in Turkey, right? It's not possible to ask these questions. It's harder to ask these questions because I think politicians or policymakers are scared of the answers or they don't want to hear the answers, not really scared maybe, but they don't want to hear the answers to those questions. And because we know that you are also very active on doing research yourself in this <laughs> very specific topic, I would like to ask you, so what are you currently working on that is also related to perceived discrimination in adolescents or in young people? So I, I think that one of the reasons why I chose this paper or the paper is so salient in my mind, because I'm working on two papers uh, regarding discrimination that kind of extends this meta-analysis. Uh, one is kind of a longitudinal research uh, focusing on Muslim minority, Turkish and Moroccan background, Muslim minority adolescents in Belgium. So it's a European context. And I'm looking at the experience of Muslim minority adolescents, which is not very much done uh, in this line of research. And it's a longitudinal research. I'm looking at how those experiences change through secondary school years, right? And my main interest in there, that these experiences, they don't have to be same for everyone in that minority group, right? There could be maybe majority of these kids, they don't experience discrimination at all, right? But there could be smaller groups of kids who are experiencing more problematic relationships. Maybe they are experiencing discrimination increasingly more over three years, or maybe they experience discrimination at very high levels at first, but it goes down. You know, there could be different experiences for different groups of kids. And I think that's a very relevant and interesting question that is not investigated that much in the discrimination research. What I then try to understand is whether the school diversity climate can prevent negative experiences, right? If the kids and teachers perceive a positive school diversity climate, like more fairness and a more multiculturalist emphasis, like positive value to cultural diversity, then in those schools, kids experience fewer instances of discrimination. So I try to understand the contextual, in a way, how context can prevent those negative experiences in that paper. And then in another one, this time we are looking at 60 countries. We are using PISA 2018, and they have a very interesting question in PISA 2018. They look at discriminatory school climate, focusing on teacher discrimination specifically. Again, it's the perception, but we are looking at the perception of kids at the individual level, but also at the school level, the collective experience of the discriminatory climate. And we are showing how that climate affects math and reading achievement in PISA across 60 countries. I think that's also important because we have lots of weird samples in that data because it's more than US or the Western focus. So 60 countries, and we are actually showing that it has discriminatory school climate is associated with lower math and reading achievement across more than 10,000 schools, across 60 countries using PISA. So that's, I think, also impressive. Yeah, and that is something, getting more insight into how data is being collected, right? So, of course, when we're interested in a topic as social scientists, we cannot always just go into every school we know and ask, would you mind answering us these questions? So the question is also, can you make use of data that already exists, right? And PISA is, of course, something that is regularly assessed in many, many countries. So it's also wonderful to have the chance to work with existing data sets 
sets and look specifically then for your own research interests for discrimination, for example, or school climate or these kind of things. One question I had, which is a bit related to my own research, I did some research on peer socialization. So how friends, for example, among each other or students in school talk about culture, basically how much they perceive that with their friends together, they talk about culture. And I actually saw that in, well, in Germany, in the small sample that we had, when students talked more to their friends about culture, they also perceived more discrimination. Or the other way around could also be the ones who already perceive more discrimination, you know, might talk about with their friends more about these experiences or about culture in general. And I was, the question that keeps coming up for me is, by making discrimination a topic in schools, right, or among young people, or by just by addressing it, are you also raising awareness for it for the students who until now have not even seen this as a problem, you know? So could it be that by, I think that's a fear that a lot of schools have, by starting with, you know, initiatives to talk about discrimination, that they might open up conversations that might, you know, only affect some of their students, but many students might actually until now not have been aware that they were discriminated against or so. So what do you think about that? I think that's very interesting. I think some intervention studies find that as well, right? Like when they do intervene and talk about these cultural diversity issues, it seems like discrimination experiences are increasing after after the talk or, or the experimental design, the intervention. But in actuality, the awareness of discrimination, recognition of discrimination instances increasing. I think whether you recognize it is due to discrimination or not, those unfair treatments are affecting your self-esteem regardless. So even if the kid doesn't realize that he's discriminated because of his background, he probably thinks, okay, they're treating me like this, they're bullying me, it's because something I did, right? They would blame themselves. I think it is worse. If the kids are aware that this is, in a way, external to themselves, their, like, their own behavior, right? It's just because they come from a certain cultural background, then I think we are giving them also the chances to disregard those discriminatory treatments. We should, at the same time, give them the resource and the coping mechanisms and if it is ignoring, that's also a coping mechanism, right, with discrimination. So I think awareness of discrimination is, in a way, the first step to prevent these kids from the negative effects of discrimination. Because just because they're not aware that this is discrimination doesn't mean they're not aware that they are bullied or they are treated badly by their teachers or teachers think that they cannot do as well. It is better if they recognize that as discrimination rather than something they did or their lack of capacity or their, their character or something. So I think awareness is, is critical and important. So I guess there's really a high risk by not being aware, for example, if I as a student part of a societal group that in general is being, you know, regarded as stigmatized or is regarded as maybe not very capable or so all of these things. 
So if I'm not aware that I'm part of that group, I might constantly think it must be me individually, right? So I might constantly think maybe I'm really not that smart. Maybe I don't have the skills to go into university or to achieve something or so. And by increasing the awareness that there are certain things that are a bit out of your hands also, maybe that affect you just because of your background, it might take away a bit of the pressure from the individual to try to find this within themselves. Is that what you would say? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But at the same time, we should, of course, teach kids how to coping mechanisms to deal with those things, right? Because at the same time, kids learn that they're treated differently because of something that is not within their control, right? If you don't teach kids from young age that this is a possibility and how they should cope with it in a way, that might also not be a very good strategy. We really have to think about coping mechanisms as well. You know, preparing your kids, but also preparing them how to cope with it, right? I have a small kid myself, so I'm thinking about these questions all the time. We are in the UK. We are from a Turkish background. He has a different name. You know, his parents speak a different language. What if he's discriminated, right? Like, what, he's, what if he's treated differently? And that is a constant concern for me. And then I'm thinking of, you know, talking about these issues with him, that he's aware from a young age and that he's in a way prepared. Also, but you should also talk, even if your kid is not a minority. I mean, I think it's important to talk with kids about these issues early on. And do you have recommendations from your own research or also maybe from the article that we read, recommendations on how schools, for example, could prepare students better for dealing with discrimination? Yeah, like there's some evidence, for instance, that the positive cultural diversity climates, right, are protecting kids from negative effects of discrimination. That means that actually valuing diversity and valuing cultural backgrounds and the feeling of fairness, right? The fairness in school, that's so important. So if you create more inclusive, more positive diversity climates in your school, in those schools, kids have uh, better experiences with their teachers. We also had a paper looking at the effect of school cultural diversity climate on student-teacher relationships. And if the school is fair and, and it's valuing cultural diversity, then kids in those schools have more positive experiences for their teachers. They also report lower experiences, fewer instances of discrimination. So I think for schools, it's very important not to ignore but value cultural diversity, saying that it's an added value, seeing it as an added value, presenting it as an added value, and the fairness, I think, is a, is a critical thing as well. Okay, then this brings us to our next section, the future. So what changes would you like to see in the upcoming years regarding these two topics you mentioned and academia in general? So I think, as I mentioned um, a little bit about the representation issue in psychology in general, I want to maybe talk a bit more about that also from my own personal experiences as a non-native speaker of English and as someone who has tried to publish about Turkey, right? In psychology, so really, it's not only about the issues of discrimination or cultural diversity, but in psychology in general, the research is heavily weighted to Western samples, and non-Western samples are definitely underrepresented. And I see 
that there are different layers of inequality or barriers in front of scholars. And one is the reviewing process, the publication process itself. As a non-native speaker, of course, you start with a disadvantage, right? You have to write in English. Most high-impact journals are in English. And, and often, like, even if you're very fluent, right, the way you write things would probably show itself that you're not a native speaker, right? Even if you write very clearly and everything. And now and then you would always get a reviewer saying, oh, the author must be a non-native speaker, or the paper should be proofed by a native speaker of English, right? So, I mean, you could suggest language proofing for an article, which is fine, but you don't have to assume that it should be edited by a native speaker or that the author is a non-native speaker. That's actually downgrading the person there, right? The scholar. It's not a very constructive criticism. And also another thing I see a lot, also from my own research, that whenever you try to publish on Turkey, for instance, it's always the reviewers will come say, okay, but how this is embedded in and limited to Turkey, right? How Turkish culture affects your results. They want you to comment on that. And sometimes they would also ask you to put Turkey in the title. I mean, which is fine. I'm not against embedding research into context, right? But this is not done for U.S. samples, right? You would never see an article with the U.S. in the title. But if it is China, if it is Turkey, it's generally in the title, right? Because reviewers ask you to do that. They ask you to culturalize your findings and assuming that the U.S. samples and participants, they don't have culture, right? Their findings are universal and your findings are limited to this one culture. I think that's a very Eurocentric or American-centric, to be more <laughs> accurate, uh, way of seeing things. And that is really a barrier. You cannot, like, because if you're an author submitting to a journal, you try to go along with reviewers' suggestions. And especially if you're a young scholar, you don't have the entitlement or the power to reject those reviews and, and criticize those reviews, right? So there's a power asymmetry there. So most of the time you go along with that. So this is really harder. You cannot really claim universality based on Turkish samples. You just have to culturalize that. <laughs> and another reason is just the money, right? I mean, articles behind paywalls. I mean, in the past it was print articles, but now it's online. It should be more accessible, right? But often not. Uh, in Turkey, universities don't have access to JSTOR or PsycInfo. Like, how are you going to read articles, right? I mean, if you cannot read articles, access articles easily, how are you going to stay up to date in your area? And this is also about money, that the research, I mean, our findings should be accessible to everyone. Now they have these open articles, but they ask you to pay money for that as well. That's very expensive if you want to make your article, the article you wrote, open and accessible to other people. And that's, I think that has to change, really. And another thing I see with the use of these crowdsourcing platforms, it has become almost the norm, in, especially in social psychology, for instance, because you need several studies and if you want to publish in high-impact journals. And it's very easy to pay, you know, these crowdsourcing platforms and you collect data within a week. And then you do four studies and you can publish in a high-impact journal. Whereas if you're coming from other countries, non-Western countries, it's not really an option. Even it is harder to collect data even from one sample, one study, and that would not get you very high in terms of impact factor in journals. 
So I think uh, we really have to work on this. It's not only an issue of representation of scholars and inclusiveness, but it's also an issue about the findings of our studies, right? If we want to understand human behavior, we cannot base our research on less than 5% of the human population and claim that we understand the humans now, right? It's also about the universality of our findings. It's very much limited by these research practices. Yeah, and I think what might be helpful at this moment is also to explain a bit why are we talking about publication It's because I think a lot of people don't actually know that this is part of our job besides, you know, teaching in universities, that it's also, you know, doing research, but then also writing about it and publishing. And that publishing usually goes by us writing an article and submitting it to a journal as kind of uh, with a request, would you please <laughs> print this? Would you please accept this? Then it gets reviewed by other scholars and then it gets shared to whoever has the money to access this particular journal or these bigger uh, companies. And I think that is really not so much known to people outside of research is that we don't earn money by publishing. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I well, think, I'm really surprised to hear that, right? Yes, because I think the idea is, well, anyone who publishes a book, you know, like a popular, like a fiction or something, they usually get parts of the sales. They actually, you know, like at least however good they were in negotiating beforehand, they do get a little bit of it back. But actually in research, this is part of an understanding of our profession is that we do research, but that we share it with the scientific community. And the way that it is usually shared is through these journals. And I think that is really important to explain this because it also explains then when you talk about um, the money that, for example, I'm now in the Netherlands and here all universities have a deal with the main big publishing companies that they actually pay a lot of money every year so that all students in the Netherlands can have access to all of these journals, all of these articles, all researchers, so including me and my work. I actually now have access to all of these studies worldwide, but just because it was a decision on a political level to actually invest so much money in giving access to students. And uh, that was not the case when I was doing my PhD in Germany. There's not such an agreement, and every university makes their own agreement, how much they want to pay for which journal, for which you know, groups of journals, and so on. And that's, I think, what you mentioned with Turkey, so that actually in every country and sometimes even every university itself has to decide how much money do we want to spend so that our own students can have and staff can have access to worldwide studies. And that is actually, yeah, it's very difficult then if you are situated somewhere where you don't have that access, how would you know what is the most current findings in your field? Right. Exactly. I mean, it's also, it's just, you know, information should be accessible to everyone, not only students, not only academics. It should be free. It should be, I mean, we are doing the work for free, right? I mean, we are writing the article for free. The reviewers are reviewing the articles for free. The editors in the journals are working there for free. So like, and the, the funding comes from uh, government funds often, you know, from the taxes of the people and the information produced and published, therefore should be accessible and free to everyone. That's also, I think, it's a very straightforward idea, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I also feel like this brings like two different levels of discrimination and privilege in the academic world as well. So because it depends on which country you're working at and how much access is given to you and also the academia itself that is kind of uh, problematic in the sense that we're doing a lot of work for free, but 
and who is getting paid and who is making the rules are completely, uh, yeah. So maybe we can also move to some other remaining questions. And so which crucial questions and controversies remain in this conversation of discrimination you would like to mention? Yeah, I think one thing I, before like closing this session that because I'm talking about inclusivity all the time, so the academic world should be inclusive as well, right? And that's, that's one of my concerns. And specifically when it comes to discrimination issue, I have the question how we're gonna reduce discrimination. We know from research that, right, discrimination is experiencing discrimination from the target point of view or victim point of view is very costly. It affects their future life chances. It affects their well-being, success and everything. But then how are we going to reduce discrimination, right? There, of course, it also relies on the majority or the privileged groups who are experiencing less discrimination or who are doing the discriminating, right? So if I'm feeling discriminated, someone is doing the discriminating, that it means that. But there's a lot of denial and on the side of the majorities or the privileged groups, right? At the individual level, denial works that I'm not the one doing the discrimination, right? And also the idea of this implicit bias was very popular for a while in psychology. I think the reason why it was so sexy, right? And readily accepted by the majority or the privileged groups because you're not responsible, it's implicit. Everyone has it, right? Everyone has it. It's not within your control. It's not something, and there's nothing you can do about it, right? So everyone liked this idea that an implicit level we might be biased, but it is not within our control. And it, in a way, it kind of reduces your responsibility as a person, as a privileged person. Even if you're not doing the one discrimination, some people from your group are doing the discrimination. So there should be, I think we should assume responsibility whenever our group is the one doing the discriminating. And at the systemic and the institutional level, right, there is also a lot of denial there because minorities are saying that there is also discrimination at the systemic institutional level. And, and the institutions are coming back and saying that, no, there isn't, right? It's just a few bad apples, right? It's a few bad police, if it's a few bad teachers or whatever. But if a system is creating constantly unequal results, there is a problem with the system, right? I mean, so it cannot be reduced to a few bad apples if the system is constantly producing unequal result, disadvantaging the already disadvantaged minority groups. We also saw it with COVID, health disparities, right? Uh, who is affected most by uh, COVID and who's most affected negatively, who is more likely to get COVID? It's also the certain disadvantaged groups. So like these cannot be coincidence and cannot be reduced to a few groups. So we really have to, as a psychologist, I think we really have to find ways of getting privileged or majority groups on board with this idea. We really, denial is, I think, the biggest barrier in reducing discrimination. And I see that some promising lines of research on defense mechanisms among white or majority groups or privileged groups, they're working on that. They're working on mechanisms of allyship, you know, because not all majority group members are in denial. They realize and they want to support and work together with minorities to prevent that inequalities, right? So, what are the mechanisms of allyship? Who does that? And how can we make it something more common? So I think there are also promising research lines and more and more interest in that regard. 
because I think the biggest challenge, if we know discrimination has a negative effect and it's costly for everyone, right, at the end of the day. So we have to do something to reduce that. And I see that a lot of promising research lines in psychology in that regard. So there is hope, yeah. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's all we wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for elaborating on this topic and on the issues that you still see. Uh, I would have one final question for you is, how do you stay motivated in your job as a researcher? Uh, especially nowadays, it's harder, I have to admit, you know, <laughs> always working from home and, and, and not having any social interactions. But uh, what I do generally is I really like learning new things that kind of inspires me. I also love uh, statistical analysis. Um, so I'm currently doing, trying to learn R, you know, and doing something new and improving myself. I don't know, that keeps me really motivated. And before COVID, I used to love conferences as well. It's, 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 a, it's a specific time you allocate for listening to people, getting inspired by what others are doing, hearing about uh, research ideas and interesting ideas. I also used to love conferences, and I hope that after the COVID, hopefully we'll be able to go back to these in-person or face-to-face conferences. Because, I mean, at home, it's not the same thing. It's because it's harder to allocate your time to only listening to those conversations, right? You also try to respond to your email or maybe mark this paper or, you know, like all the other things are still there. Whereas when you go away, you, you can actually focus on that. And that keeps me inspired hearing about other people's interesting research. Thank you so much, Gusli, for joining us today and for helping us increase visibility of outstanding social scientists just as yourself and of cutting-edge research. So thank you all for listening and talk soon. We want to thank Minor Revisions for the music, Max Kersten for post-production, Lotte Koeman for logo design, and Zeynep Althai for artwork. Make sure to visit our website for bonus materials and to follow us on social media at Research and Diversity Podcast. Stay tuned and talk soon.